sweet. Now smile at the person next to you. All right, very good. There we go. That's good. Uh, for those who don't know, my name is James. I've uh, been here on staff for a little while. Uh, as Elena did, we welcome you who are in-house, and we welcome those watching online. Ron and Charlotte, it's good to see you guys this morning. Um, Charlotte's feeling a lot better, and she appreciates your guys' prayers, so uh, they wanted me to pass that on. I got a text from Ron just a couple of moments ago. So uh, Elena also made an announcement about kids' bulletins. Now, I realize it's been a long time since we've done kids' bulletins. Um, it was actually before COVID, which if you aren't making the connections, was like three years ago today was the first Sunday that we actually uh, met from home. So any kids that are left that want to do these, any adults that want candy from my drawer of iniquity? Okay, very good. If it doesn't make sense for adults, then it's not going to make sense for kids. Anybody? Come on. Should I just preach from this? It might be shorter. Might be. Might be funner, too. I think most of us have seen a picture like this before. Hmm, some of y'all are like, hmm, I've seen that picture. I know what it's about. It's an iceberg, right? And kids, if you're here, or adults, if you want to draw an iceberg, go ahead. That's what it looks like. Okay, Randy? Um, I think we understand the basic premise of this, right? There's certain things in an iceberg that you see above the water, but then there's a whole bunch of things below the water. There's a bunch of things we don't see. I actually think our text is like that today. I want to pray, and then we're going to jump right in. God, thank you so much for an opportunity uh, to gather, to laugh, to poke fun at a, at a, at a clock moving forward, uh, to worship both in song and community and prayer and giving. I thank you that we have a chance to worship in opening your word as well. And Lord, I pray you'd help us see both what's above the surface and what's below this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Uh, we are continuing on with our uh, very lengthy um, Offensive Christianity series. Uh, we started this back in September. And in this series, we are looking, uh, taking a nice, long, slow walk with Jesus, looking at who he welcomes in, who he invites into his life, who he walks life with. We've seen a lot, learned a lot, been pushed a lot, and maybe today will be no different. So this morning, as Jesus and his disciples continue their trek to Jerusalem, we come to a text that I think I've only ever heard preached one way. And I was sitting with it this week, and I started wondering, is there more below the surface, more that we don't see? So follow along, or just listen, as I read from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, just in case it's slightly different from yours. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat on anyone, and you must honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've observed all these commandments since I was young. Now looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. And I wonder what that must have looked like. I mean, if you, if, if you want to just stop and check out the rest of the next 25 minutes and just ponder that, that's fine. 
what would it look like for Jesus to look at you with genuine love? There's still one thing you haven't done, Jesus told the man. Go and sell your possessions. Give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, It is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently. Can you imagine that? He's looking at one person with love and one intently. I'm not even going to try to demonstrate the difference in those. He looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it's impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Then Peter began to speak up. Lord, we've given everything to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the gospel, for the good news, will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Raise your hand if you ever heard a sermon preached on that text. Yeah, more than likely. I'm just guessing because this is what it seems like. That sermon that was preached was on money or some variation of money, kids or adults, if you're filling out the children's bulletin, that's the answer number two, money. Money. Okay? It looks like this is a text about money. This is a text about about what grabs people's hearts. This is a text about being willing to sacrifice whatever it is in order to follow Jesus. And this has been the traditional teaching of this text, and it's a valid teaching. It's a good exegesis, which is a fancy way of saying it's a good interpretation of the text. I mean, verse 21, which seems like the pivotal verse, is about money. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him and said, there's still one more thing you need to do. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, if you didn't know, both in Jewish history and in pagan history, wealth was a sign of divine favor. If you had money, it shows that God was blessing you. All right, but Jesus in the business that he's in is turning things upside down, right? We mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. But the entire history would have said something differently. I mean, even even King David, Israel's most revered king, once wrote this in Psalm 37, verse 25. He said, once I was young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging for food. I mean, we can read through the lines in that, and we hear David saying, ah, God, you're going to give the blessed ones plenty. There's going to be enough because they're going to have enough. Jesus would have known this psalm. The disciples would have known this psalm. 
So that's why the disciples twice were really taken aback. I mean, Mark makes it a point to share twice the disciples' reaction to what Jesus was saying. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this amazed the disciples. And again, verse 25, you know, the the whole camel, eye of a needle thing. And, And then verse 26, the disciples were astounded. The disciples would have argued that the more prosperous a person was, the more certain they were of their entry into the kingdom. That person's loaded, they're going to heaven because God blesses them. And wealth isn't a bad thing. Please don't hear me say that, okay? We know this. Wealth back then, wealth today is not a bad thing. It's the, the love of wealth. That's what First Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's, it's, it's fitting, this this whole text to be preached with that emphasis, this emphasis on money, because that's really what it looks like on the surface. But I have to wonder, is there more below the surface? So I'm just going to wonder a little bit this morning. You guys know it's okay to like ask questions about the Bible when you're reading? You know it's okay to be like, huh, what does that mean? I, I, I wonder. I do that just about every time I open the text. All right, so you're going to hear me wonder out loud. Just go on my crazy mind for a little bit this morning. Starting back in verse 17, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. But Jesus, uh, Jesus says, but to answer your question, you know the commandments. Don't murder, commit adultery, steal, testify falsely, cheat, honor your father and mother, and the man says, sweet, I've done all of those commandments since I was young. Below the surface in these early couple of verses, I started thinking several things. I'm like, whoa, I wonder. I wonder if this text has something to do with coming to Jesus on an emotional high. Where am I getting that? Right? Coming to Jesus on an emotional high. Don't get me wrong. Youth events are great, right? And we can remember events are fantastic and emotive concerts that, that, you, know, that you raise your hands that, and that we can actually clap on beat to. I love it. We make a noble effort here. It is fantastic. So spirit-filled Sunday mornings can absolutely draw people to Christ. But I wonder if what this is, maybe, I'm wondering if below the surface there's a subtle warning against coming to Jesus just based out of an emotional rush. And here's why I say this. In verse 17, it says, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked. From Mark's account, what do we know about this fella? He was a, he was a man. That's what we know. Right? And he came running, and, and he knelt down. All right? He took this, this posture of submission. He had this sense of urgency is what we can kind of read into the text. Now, if you do a little cross-referencing to the same story in Matthew's gospel, we learn that this guy was young. Matthew 19, verse 22, it says he's a young man. And in Luke's account of the same story, it says that this person was a religious ruler or a, a ruler in most of your texts. Now, all three of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, they they share that this man had some sort of wealth, some sort of money, some sort of uh, possession. So when you take those three Gospels together, you get that this was a rich, young ruler of a man. All right? Uh, Did he have generational wealth? You can say, we don't know. Go ahead, say it. All right. Was he a savvy business? 
<laughs> uh, where's Elena? Um, the time changed. It got me. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Was he a savvy businessman? We, we don't know, right? Was he born into a wealthy family? We don't know. But according to that culture and that belief, he was hashtag blessed because he had all sorts of money. He was loaded. I mean, this was the guy who must have been living right. He was the one who found the parking lot at the very front of Costco every single time because God was blessing him. And he could get whatever he wanted at Costco, even like buy the samples. This is the type of man in that culture who would have never run. Culturally, he would have never run. He would have never hiked up his man skirt and walked faster than a brisk pace. All right? It would have been shameful to do in that culture. To see this rich, young, powerful ruler of a man running and kneeling and, and submitting to somebody else. I love how one commentator puts it. it says, there's something amazing in the sight of this rich, young aristocrat falling at the feet of a penniless prophet from Nazareth who was on his way to become an outlaw. Did this guy, had he heard a good sermon preached by Jesus? Had he heard of a healing? Had he heard of a demon casting out? And he got this like emotional rush when he was walking near Jesus and decided, I need to figure out whether or not he needed to follow him. So he ran up to him and was like, good teacher. I wonder if below the surface this text is telling us, be careful not just to come to Christ based on emotions. Just wondering. Is there more? Maybe. Look at what the guy called Jesus. Was he just trying to puff Jesus up, right? This guy, uh, they're on their way to Jerusalem. A man comes running up to him, kneels down, and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good. Kids and adults that are filling it out, that's number five. Got it? Is it making sense so far? Randy, you got that one? Hey, Randy, you got, you got question number five? You got question number five? Good? Okay. Worse for me. Sweet. Randy wrote a book, so I just need to make sure that he thinks this makes sense. Love it. Good teacher. I couldn't find anywhere else in the New Testament where somebody called Jesus good. You can correct me if I'm wrong, if you know it, uh, later uh, on Wednesday. Um, I also asked Trevor, because he's been to seminary more recently than I have. Has anybody else in, in the New Testament called Jesus good? Well, Jesus called himself the good shepherd, but uh, Ron... I don't know if anybody else called Jesus good. And I wonder, is, is that because of Jesus' response, right? Only God was good. So why would anybody call anybody else good unless maybe they were brown-nosing a little bit, right? Sucking up to him, trying to buff, puff him up a bit? Hey, hey, good teacher. Was this guy trying to flatter Jesus? We don't know, but it's causing me to wonder. Now, what about this? How about the question that he asked Jesus? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Most scholars, who I should probably just listen to, most scholars would say this guy was just asking a question, uh, seeking to discern or determine whether or not Jesus was a rabbi that he would want to follow. It was a question that was kind of like, hey, rabbi, how do you interpret the law? Why should I join your team? That, that's what most scholars think this question is. And again, I should probably listen to most scholars. I have to wonder if, the, if this guy was saying, Jesus, what's the least I have to do to get in? 
kind of makes you think a little bit. We've all asked that question before. Teachers, don't hate me. You know this is true, okay? When you get to the end of the semester and, Professor John, it happens, right? And you start calculating how low can I get on my final exam and still get an A in the class. Not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've done this, and I'm not going to, well, yeah, I'll tell you. I did this. Senior year in high school, okay, I had taken the advanced math freshman, sophomore, junior years, and I took business math my senior year. This was the class that after pre-calculus or whatever it is, you had to help the mailman find the shortest route to deliver his packages. It was a great class. I didn't miss an answer the entire semester. I started doing the math because I had done the advanced math before. Like, what could I get? I could get a 0% and still get an A. Kids, don't follow my example. I may or may not have just signed my name on the exam and turned it in. Still still graduated valedictorian. What's up? (laughs) Oh, the teachers in the house are like, no longer listening. Mm -hmm. What if we ask the question a different way, right? How far is too far? For those entering a dating relationship, you're asking that question, right? Can I, can I hold hands? Can I, can I hug? Can I kiss on the cheek? Never understood the baseball analogies of first base, second base, third base. I don't want it explained to me, okay? Where's the line? How far is too far? You know, are we paying taxes? Anybody doing that? Don't raise your hand because if you're not, I don't want to know. Um, I'm a mandatory reporter. <laughs> Wrong thing. Um, If your neighbor pays you 50 bucks to mow his yard, do you have to claim that as self-employment tax? (laughs) All the accountants in the house are like, yep, 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 yep. Thank you, Heidi. I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Is he asking, what is the least that I can do and still get in? And Jesus' response seems to be playing into into that, that leaning of the question. Well, to answer your question, he says, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't testify falsely, don't cheat anyone, and honor your father and mother. Uh, there's, there was a couple of scholars that said this is the low-hanging fruit of the Ten Commandments. Like, these are the easy ones to follow if you can characterize them as easy and hard. I don't know. I mean, you look at the guy's response. I've done all those since I was young. And he's thinking to myself, yes, I have lived a decent, respectable life I'm in. I haven't harmed anyone according to those commandments. Now, of course, Jesus pushed it a little bit farther, which Jesus always tends to do. He says, look, buddy, this isn't about what you did not do to others, but it's about what you have not done for others. It's not what you did not do to others, but it's what you have not done for others. You know, respectability is all about what you don't do, but Christianity is all about what you do do. What's the least I can do and still get in? I I don't know if the guy was asking that, but it made me wonder a little bit. And, of course, then the disciples pick up on that. I have to chuckle at their response. 
The disciples said, who in the world can be saved, right? Verse 27, Jesus is like, humanly speaking, impossible, not so with God. And then Peter, in his brash and say whatever he wants to type of personality, he says, well, look at what we've done. Is that enough? We've given up everything. Everything. And Jesus, you know, great response. He says, yeah, you have. And anyone who's given up, house or brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, property, for my sake and for the good news, will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, property, along with persecution. I mean, there's some people who would take that passage and say, that, that's a health and wellness passage, right? That's a health and wealth. And, you know, if, if, if you give up, if you just send, I'm going to look directly into the camera. If you just send that check that you can't afford to send, you mail it in right now. At this moment, you will be hashtag blessed, right? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, he's not because he says with persecutions. He's making sure people know this isn't just easy, Right? This isn't a quid pro quo. Jesus never offers an easy way. He never used a bribe. He never told the kids, do a children's bulletin and you'll get candy from my drawer. <laughs> he used the challenge. And there was truth in what he said. I mean, we look at that and we're like, really? A hundred houses, a hundred sisters, a hundred brothers? Well, look, if anybody started following Christ back then, they were cut off from their immediate family. They lost their home. But when you open up the family of faith, all of a sudden you've got hundreds of brothers and sisters and hundreds of homes to crash on the couch. And look at the Apostle Paul. He found homes like everywhere he went. So what Jesus was saying was true. I wonder. This passage makes me wonder. And there's one more thing kind of below the surface that I actually think is the biggest part of the iceberg that I've been wondering about. I wonder if this text, Jesus is forcing the people listening and us to sit in the future versus now tension. In the future versus now tension. Here's what I mean. When the guy comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He has a future-oriented mindset, right? A glorious someday in the great by and by type of mindset. As we would put it today, Jesus, what must I do to get into heaven? But look at Jesus' response. Jesus doesn't talk about someday in a great by and by with white fluffy clouds and golden pearly harps and gates and everything. No, he talks about now. And he talks about the people that you're interacting with now. Look at verse 19, each of the commandments. Each of these commandments, you have to have other people involved. To murder, got to be somebody else. To commit adultery, Got to be somebody else. Okay, you're going to say that with me. The got to be somebody else part, all right? To steal, there's got to be somebody else. To cheat, there's got to be somebody else. To honor your father and mother, there's got to be somebody else, right? These commandments deal with the here and now, not some future by and by. And this instruction that Jesus gave, go and sell all your belongings, this wasn't just go and get rid of what captures your heart. Did you see the, the, the emphasis to it? Go and sell and give to the poor now. It's dealing with other people. 
And then Jesus says, and then after you've lived a good, noble, respectable life, and you're near your end, you can follow me. No. This is follow me. That's a, that's a verb. Follow, I think. Is that math? I was going to say, is that mathematically correct? It's not. Uh, he says, follow me, which is now, today. The man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? Looking off into the future. The disciples in verse 26, what must I do to be saved? Looking off into the future. And Jesus responds in verse 23, 24, and 25 with, let me tell you about the kingdom of God. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This, of course, amazed the disciples. And Jesus said again, dear children, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the, the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Um, I've said it before. Elena said it before. When something is repeated in Scripture, pay attention. Jesus' focus isn't like off in the glorious by and by. It's on the kingdom of God, which is now. Now, how can I say that so confidently? Because that's what Jesus said. A group of Pharisees came up to him in Luke chapter uh, 17. And they said, they said, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. It's within you. It's in your midst. It's in your grasp. The kingdom of God is now. Questions are being asked of Jesus of, how do I get there? And Jesus is saying, how do you stay here? How do you focus on what's around you? Now, I don't want to portray that this guy in the, in the story is thinking about heaven like we would think about heaven. Okay, we think about this glorious place you go when you breathe your last on this side and, you, and, you, and you know, then it's heaven. But this guy was asking a question uh, in, the, in the Jewish understanding of, of a future coming age. It was a future type of thing, but it, it was a future renewed earth. A time when the Messiah would come. He'd make all things new. It's a little bit rabbit trail, but track with me. I'm reading a, uh, slowly reading a book called 15 New Testament Words of Life. And in this book, the author is looking at 15 different words in the New Testament that we use that the New Testament people and the Old Testament people might have seen slightly differently than we do. And one of those words is gospel, right? Also, also translated as good news. Gospel. We hear it, and if I were to ask you what the gospel was, and I know this because I've asked my staff and I've asked my leadership, we would always have some sort of, some sort of uh, a combination of, well, it's, it's about Jesus, and it's about a cross, and it's about blood, and it's about payment for sin, and it's about, and it's about being right with, with the Father, and that's all a part of the good news, but when, when, the, when the original people, when Jesus' listeners, when the Old Testament listeners heard the term good news, they thought something different. Listen to what the author says. Israel's gospel is not about heaven and the afterlife. It's not about appeasing a wrathful God. It's about a new creation and the renewal of all things. God swoops in and comes to his people. He frees them from bondage. He restores them to their home and rebuilds their city. He battles against their oppressors. He brings justice and peace to the chaotic world. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as Mark helps us see, is not a theological formula for salvation. It's not a roadmap to heaven. It's the message of what God has done, is doing, 
and will do in the fulfillment of the promise to bring a glorious, beautiful, just, unifying kingdom, a kingdom of God with Jesus as Lord and Messiah. So when Jesus talks about in verse 29, anybody who's given up all these things for me and the good news, what they're hearing is the good news being this time has started when God is stepping into our creation and beginning to set things right, beginning to make them what they need to be. Here's the fun thing. We get to be a part of that. It's been in process ever since Jesus started it. And that's just flat out awesome. So anyways, the good news that Jesus referenced in verse 29 and and the the kingdom of God that he's referencing in verse 23, 24, and 25, this was all Jesus' way of saying, look, what you're hoping for to happen one day, I'm telling you it's happening now because I'm here. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not a future thing. It's a now thing. It's a today thing. It's a get on board. It's a help those around you. It's a love those around you. It's a walk with those around you. It's, it's, it's a everything you do today now, when you pay attention to that, you're going to be seeing the kingdom of God in action now. I know people. You know people. We might have even said it. Who have said, I, I can't wait to die so I can go to heaven. And, and, and be with Jesus, because that's when things are going to get good. That's when the kingdom of God's really going to arrive. You know, this sentiment often comes from a place of pain, of suffering, of hurt, of sickness, of just despair and hopelessness. This, it, that's tip of the iceberg. What Jesus is saying is, look, the kingdom of God is now. It's below the surface. And friends, I don't want to miss that. It's with other people is taking place all around us. And if we can just take time to see, eyes to see, put the little goggles on, right, like the kid does in the bathtub and look under the surface of the water, can you imagine what we would see if we said, God, give us eyes to see your kingdom now? Oh, maybe that should be our prayer this week. God, give us eyes to see your kingdom now. I tell you what, you want to see the kingdom of God? I do. I do. So let's let's get our little goggles. (laughs) Let's put them on. Let's look below the surface. And let's say this week, God, where is your kingdom at work? With whom is your kingdom at work? Let us join you in that kingdom of God. Yes, we should be future-oriented. We should want to spend forever and ever with Jesus in this renewed earth, everything made new and whole. But we can't miss what's happening now. You're going to see the kingdom of God happening on your drive home. Will you notice it? You're going to see the the kingdom of God as you're eating dinner with your family. (laughs) Some of y'all may even see the kingdom of God when you go to work tomorrow. If you do, call me because I want to work with you. (laughs) Although I see the kingdom. Yes, I see it here too. (laughs) I want to put my goggles on and see the kingdom of God at work. Is this text about money? Sure. There's things we can learn about, about money. But I think there's so much more that we need to look below the surface for. So are you willing to do that with me this week? Put those goggles on, look beneath the surface. If you see a moment of kingdom of God living out and you're like, ooh, ooh, that's it, do me a favor, call somebody, text somebody, email them. Just tell them, I think I experienced the kingdom of God. And if somebody tells you that, high five right there. All you got to say is thank you for sharing. Anybody in? You want to do that with me? Let's pray.
God, I don't want to miss what you're doing. And it is easy to go through the motions of our faith. It is easy to study a passage of Scripture that we've heard preached on countless times with a very specific focus countless times and think, okay, been there, done that, seen that, heard that, offering was already passed, I, I, I gave. But God, there's so much more that we can learn. And I thank you for opportunities like this where you open up our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our souls to see things that may be a little bit different. I, th I thank you that you give us permission to wonder, to ask questions, to not be certain. And I thank you that in all of that, you, Jesus, are walking with us. So as we walk with you, help us walk well with others because what I see in this text is you're telling us that's where the kingdom of God really comes alive. So help us see that. I pray this in the powerful name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.